Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. Welcome aboard another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. And uh, welcome to 2017. It's a brand new year, about to have a brand new president, brand new policies, and brand new travel interesting stuff. I mean, when you think about it, we have an infrastructure problem in this country. Uh, Our roads, our highways, our bridges, our airports. Uh, Let's not forget Joe Biden calling LaGuardia a third world airport. It was and probably still is. Um, And we're seeing so many airports out there that are being underserved. Um, airports that are down 40% in traffic, whether it's Ontario, California, or Cleveland, or Cincinnati, or Memphis, um, and the list goes on and on. Uh, uh, this year will be the year that you'll see airlines no longer competing for market share. They're only going to be competing for yield. They're going to feel no need to fly to all 50 states. And by the way, they haven't been feeling that need for a while, but it's only going to get worse. Uh, airfares have nowhere to go but up. The law of supply and demand will kick in. The airlines have practiced what they call capacity discipline, which means they've shrunk. Uh, That's why every plane you're on is full. Um, And we're dealing with an era of disruption, not just in our our, our political landscape, but in terms of international travel. Uh, Norwegian Air, given the permission from the Department of Transportation to fly to many cities in the United States with airfares that are, are claiming below their own cost. Great for consumers in the short run, but how long can it be sustained? Think about this. It's cheaper to fly from New York to Bergen, Norway, than it is to fly from New York to Washington, D.C. It is cheaper to fly from New York to L.A. than it is to fly from New York to Boston. Um, It's not based on distance anymore. It's not based on real cost. It's based on what the market will bear and in terms of which airline wants to beat up the others. Now, A long time ago, the definition of a successful airline was which could lose money longer. Um, Now, we have the answer to that. The ones who could lose money shorter are not with us. And now we have gone from eight major airlines down to four, uh, eight major airlines that were competing for 88% of the market share, and now we have four airlines that essentially own it. Um, And it'll be interesting to see how many new routes will happen domestically in this country. However, In terms of the overseas carriers, that's where you're seeing the disruption. Uh, Norwegian Air, I mentioned them. How about an airline that flies from Zurich to Las Vegas? Now, that's not a route you see every day. Well, they fly it nonstop. It's called Edelweiss. Uh, And there are airlines coming in left and right that are flying between secondary airports in major major countries uh, because they're realizing there's an underserved market. How about this? Secondary and third-level cities in China having nonstop flights to Las Vegas. That never would have happened before. 
and so it'll be interesting to see how this all lays out. And that's just the airline situation. Then there's the train situation. Amtrak just had its most successful year in history if you just base it on the number of riders on the train. Financially, they lost less money, but they still have to make a profit. And Congress has never given them the ability to do that. Uh, it's not structured that way. And yet, so many American communities depend on the train, and we forget about that. Uh, but every time I get on an Amtrak train, I'm reminded that no matter what I'm paying for my fare, they've lost money on me. Uh, you can't sustain that. The worst part about it is, we don't really have high-speed rail in America. We keep talking about it, but we don't have it. Uh, it's an embarrassment. And even if we want, even if we had the equipment, which, by the way, is available today because it's running in Japan, and it's running in France, and it's running in so many places, China. So the equipment isn't the issue. It's the tracks. And what people don't realize is that Amtrak doesn't own the tracks. It's owned by the freight lines, who have no interest in high-speed rail and have no interest in always maintaining those tracks. So that's why Amtrak can't be on time, because they're always pulling over to a siding to allow a 100-car freight train to lumber on by. Um, I wish Congress would, would basically unleash Amtrak to act as a business and to invest in it, because of all the countries in the world, our train system, and I'm a big train fan, is more or less an embarrassment. So what's going to happen with trains? And then we got cars. And the dynamic there has changed radically. When I was 17 years old, all I wanted was a car. Ask a 17-year-old today if he wants a car. He laughs at you. Um, so if you're General Motors, Chrysler, Ford, how do you, how do you uh, anticipate that? How do you adjust to that in terms of your production line? The answer is, the American market may not matter anymore. It's, it's, it's like what the tobacco companies realized. The North American market doesn't matter to them. They're selling all their cigarettes overseas. You know what the, the number one car selling is in China right now? It's a Buick. Who knew? Things are changing. So we are now at a brave new world here, a crossroads between airplanes, trains, cars. Uh, we haven't even dealt with cruise ships yet, but since, we're, since I opened my mouth, I will. Uh, cruise lines right now, unprecedented number of cruise ships being built right now. Every shipyard in the world is operating at 100% capacity. There are 56 separate cruise ships being built right now of every different pedigree and size. And where are they going? Are they going to be going to the Caribbean? No, many of them are going to China to be permanently based there to cruise around China, not even to come to the U.S. How big? I mean, that's a huge change from the days of the love boat. So all of these things play into uh, this brave new world that we're talking about. The only thing that's good news for us in relatively long-term ways is it's become an international buyer's market for air transportation. Anywhere you want to go. Uh, the airline of Portugal, TAP, will fly you from New York to Lisbon for $750 round trip. They'll, they'll let you stay there for three nights. And then you pick, you pick any one of 45 destinations that that airline flies to, and they'll fly you there for free. I mean, once again, the Delta shuttle, I think, is $609. Why would I want to do that when I can go to Lisbon and then on to any one of 45 other destinations? So... For those of you listening to this show who are thinking about traveling, the one five-letter word that needs to come out of your vocabulary is later. Um, normally, these sales are up for maybe one or two weeks after the first of the year. No, no, no. These sales are going to stay in place all the way through May and maybe even beyond then because there's just so much excess capacity. You name the airline, empty seats. Why? 
Blame it on Brexit, the power of the dollar versus the euro, uh, the Italian prime minister resigning, the French pr- president saying he's not going to run for re-election. All that has created such global uncertainty that people are staying home. And what would have been the return seats of people who had come to the United States to go back to Europe are now empty seats for us to actually begin our trip. And the discounts are going to be there for quite some time. And by the way, it's not just airlines. It's hotels. Occupancy in France right now, average occupancy of hotels right now in Paris, 45%. In the Caribbean, high season right now, they're down year over year 25%. So there's discounting everywhere. And of course, in Europe, the dollar's almost at parity with the euro. It's about $1.05 right now. That's what the euro is. There's every reason to believe it will get down to a dollar. And that's not good for U.S. exporters. Uh, and by the way, travel is an export. But for consumers in this country who are going overseas, it's a total buyer's market, and it's a win-win. So watch this space. We'll be talking about it a lot in subsequent shows. But I'm telling you right now, for the next six months, uh, do not pass go. Do not stop. Do not collect $200. Just go to the airport and pick any place you want to go, and you can get there from here at a very reasonable price. Uh Now, stick around, because coming up, a legend in the broadcasting business, a legend in the television news business, and a good friend of mine. After 52 and a half, did you hear that half? 52 and a half years at CBS, he just retired, but he's giving us some time today on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. His name, Bill Plant. When we come back, right after this. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it welcome back to the cbs travel hour with peter greenberg and welcome back to the cbs radio travel hour i'm peter greenberg travel editor for cbs news if you're just joining us we're joined by a legend in the broadcasting industry he's done it all and then some 52 and a half, I keep coming back to that half, 52 and a half years at CBS News, the legendary Mr. Bill Plant. Peter, good to be here. And Bill, did you ever count up how many miles you've flown? Never did. It'll be, it'd be interesting, though, because it'd be a lot. It would be seven figures. It would have to be. I think it is. It is. I mean, every presidential trip, just about, uh, covering wars, covering disasters, covering political campaigns, covering civil rights movement. What am I missing? Well, not much. That's, uh, you know, as I started covering the civil rights movement, then went to Vietnam, uh, came to Washington uh, about 40 years ago, uh, covered politics for most of that time. And there's a lot of travel. Every time there's a campaign, every time the president goes overseas, or every time the president goes to Pittsburgh. I mean, you know, it's all, it's all travel. Did you ever get sick of it? No, not really. It's always interesting because you never know what's going to happen. Every day is a new story. And your bag was always packed. Sure. Always ready to go. Have, uh, you know, have certain items that are folded and ready. They go in the bag. What's what's in that bag? Well, there's uh, there, you know, a couple of days worth of uh, underwear, a couple of extra shirts. Um, well, you know, another pair of slacks, uh, shaving kit. That's about it. No wine? No, I don't carry that with me normally. Um, sometimes, <laughs> if I think it's going to be an exceptionally dry place, I might have a bottle with me. Oh, so it's all about the humidity? No. No. <laughs> but when you think about it, you, you guys are always ready to go, and you always have to just jump on a plane. Sure. 
Um, the the older I got and the longer I was at CBS News, the less that was true. But in the early days, you know, you turn around, you get home, uh, and you and know, you turn right around again. Five hours later, they say, "Oops, something's going. There's a hurricane. There's a flood. You know, get on a plane, go too." I remember, since this is a podcast, I can tell this on the air. I remember a story you told me once about a United Airlines flight from Chicago to Washington, D.C. And if you don't remember it, I'm going I'm to remind you of it. It's one of the funniest stories I've ever heard. Go ahead. I don't. It's the last flight of the day from Chicago to Washington National in those days, before it was called Washington Reagan, on a United 727. You were sitting on about the fourth row in first class, and the pilot comes on the PA. And it's a typical public address announcement that the pilot makes. Welcome aboard United Airlines Flight 806, uh, heading from Chicago here to Washington National. Uh, we expect a, uh, an on-time arrival. There's not very much weather en route, but if I have to put the seatbelt sign on, I expect you to do that too during the flight. Um, and uh, anything else that comes up, I'll let you know. But right now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the friendly skies, because that was their marketing campaign. That fly the, was. Fly the friendly skies, United. And for whatever reason, he forgot to put the, the receiver, his, his microphone, back in the slot. And what everybody on the plane then heard was this. He hear the, the pilot stretching, and he goes, ah, you know what I could use right about now? A great, now you're remembering the story, aren't you? You are, aren't you? A great cup of coffee and a blowjob. And the flight attendant freaks out and starts running to the front of the plane, and apparently the guy in front of you yelled out, you forgot the coffee. Don't forget the coffee, yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty quick-witted, I must say. And that, I, I admired the comeback. And, and I remember that story ever since you told it to me, and I, I have now repeated it again. Was there ever a time when you were flying that you were scared? I think there was, sure. Um, you know, when you're, when you're first beginning to travel a great deal, you don't quite know how to deal with turbulence. Uh, and, you know, it can sometimes get very severe. And the fact is that you're probably not going to fall out of the sky. And after a while, you'll learn that and just live with it. But when you're first new to it, it was pretty scary. Uh, there were some pretty tough times. You know, flying into a storm, uh, seeing the lightning flashing all around you and bouncing up and down. Not fun. Heavy drinking on the plane at that point? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit? A little bit? Okay. When you flew with the president, and I'm talking about in Air Force One or on Air Force One when you were back in the pool... You started with Ronald Reagan and every president since. How often did the president come back? The, most presidents did not visit the rear of the presidential aircraft to talk to the press very often. But when they do do it, and this is true for President Clinton, President uh, George W. Bush, uh, and President Obama, is returning from a long overseas trip. Those were the times when they were most likely to come back and talk usually off the record. Well, what does that mean? It means that you can't attribute anything you hear to the president. However, you do have to share it because as the pool reporter on the plane, right. you're there for everyone in the press pool. Right. So you share, but you don't, but off the record means that you can't attribute it to the president. And it's very interesting because all of them, Presidents Clinton, George W. Bush, and President Obama, all gave pretty unvarnished views of what they had just been through on these overseas trips. So you get a real sense for a change of how they think, because normally they don't tell you in such great detail. Were you ever invited up? 
Um, no. Uh, it, there were, there, but, but yeah, maybe once. There were occasions when uh, reporters were called up uh, because the president wanted to say something. Um, I was only on, I think, one of those flights back, and it would have been uh, President Clinton. But uh, there's a very, there's a very nice setup up there. He's got a, <laughs> he's got a stateroom. He's got an office. Uh, there's a conference room. Very nice plane. You talk about the seven four seven. Yeah, and the seats are better than the seven hundred seven. Come on, yeah, sure. Right. Oh, absolutely. Interesting to note in the current environment that you know there's there's somewhat of a little controversy about the new seven forty sevens that are supposedly being built by Boeing to create the new Air Force One aircraft. Uh, that the presidential flies. Because I remember, and you do too, that Reagan flew the 707. The 747 was built during his administration, but he never flew it. That's correct. It was delivered during the beginning of the George H.W. Bush administration. Right. And so that would have been 1988-89. That plane's been flying now for 27 years. Um, And to put it in perspective, and people don't realize this until you tell them, that the current Air Force One, that current 747, and as you said before, Air Force One is actually a designation of a plane that the president's on. But the 747, that's a presidential aircraft, has X number of cycles. A cycle is a takeoff and a landing. It has about as many cycles in that 27 years total that an American Airlines 757 might put on in three months. That's true. but uh, And it's also among the best maintained aircraft anywhere in the world. But uh, because of the technology, uh, the White House says it's probably time, it's time for another aircraft. And right. they've got uh, Boeing looking at planning. And so far, the only money that's been spent is for the planning of another aircraft. Correct. But as the president-elect noted the other day, uh, it could, the costs could come up to, what, three, $400 million a plane. Well, they're only going to be two of them. And they're going to have the most sophisticated electronic systems, uh, so-called hardened systems, able to withstand the electromagnetic pulse of a nuclear blast. So that might cost a little more than normal. Yeah, a little more than normal. Uh, Also, the current 747 is equipped to be able to serve, because it carries about 70 people, to, to be able to serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner for about a week, if they had to, because they have refueling capability. Right. Those planes can refuel midair, and uh, if necessary, and I believe that was done only once uh, recently, and that would have been on 9/11. They did refuel. I think they did. Wow. Um, the new plane is a 747 Model 800, and for those people wondering why it has to be a 747, well, under the current rules, people don't realize this: the president is only allowed to fly on a four-engine plane built in America. And the only four-engine plane built in America happens to be a 747. Now, he can fly other equipment to different locations, but if you're talking long-haul international travel, that's the plane of choice. Well, it's, no, it's not a surprise that he has to uh, fly an American aircraft. And by the way, if you're going to object to the cost of the new aircraft, what's the alternative? They're not going to go to Airbus. No, they're not going. This, I think Boeing has a monopoly on this one. It's just not going to be allowed. Um, and by the way, this, this plane carries, as you said, sophisticated communications, sophisticated electronic countermeasures to, to, uh, to ward off any kind of missile attack, um, secure, secure communications, because you're dealing with the White House telephone operators from that plane. 
And you, the, the, the military guys make the call, but they can get anybody at any time. Sure. The president can make calls from that plane and frequently does. Uh, and I'm told that the quality is as good as uh, any normal telephone call on land. So he's not saying, can you hear me now? <laughs> he's not <laughs> no, doing that. No. no. Um, I always laugh about, about uh, uh, how every president has the opportunity to redecorate the White House. And I'm sure Mr. Trump will do that. Um, but they also historically, not everybody, but some have sort of added certain touches to the actual presidential aircraft. Uh, LBJ, for example, had a desk built that was hydraulic, that raised up, so that whoever came into his office on Air Force One had to sit below him. When I traveled with Secretary James Baker during the H.W. Bush administration, he had that aircraft. That's the one they assigned him. And he invited us up the press on occasion, and we sat around that table, which can be raised and lowered. It was Johnson's table. Yeah. And that was a 707, the military version of the 707, still flying in 1991, 92. Oh, yeah. But delivered sometime in the late 50s, I think. Well, late 60s, yeah. Because the plane didn't come in until 62. Yeah. But the thing is, the other thing that Johnson had on that plane was he had a complete wiretapping system put in to eavesdrop on every passenger on that plane. So he'd invite like a congressional delegation on board, and he just wanted to hear what they were talking about, right? Here's the irony. When Richard Nixon came in, he, he found out about that system and ordered it taken off. He might have wanted to change his mind later, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly he might have taken the one out of the White House, too, but that didn't happen. What was the craziest trip you did? Well, uh, I think probably... One of those long-haul trips where you start in, let's say, um, Paris or London, and then go to Moscow, and then, on the same day, wind up somewhere in China. Uh, That actually did happen. And that's one long day, let me tell you. I bet. I remember reading about this, of course. Christmas time, 1967. Vietnam War completely out of control, people marching in the streets in the United States, and LBJ sitting in the toilet at the White House, in in his residence, decided, I mean, normally, and you know this, Bill, because you covered it, when a president's going to go on a trip, it's planned way in advance, the protocol's done, you have the advance team that goes out ahead of him, all the, right? That's very unusual for a lot, unless there's a, a disaster somewhere or the space shuttle challenger situation where Reagan went down to Florida. But normally, it's planned in advance. Johnson gets up that day and goes, I want to go see the troops. And nobody was ready for it. I mean, nothing had been done in advance. He just took off and went to, to Andrews Air Force. And the press was like racing to get out there because nobody knew where he was going. And then he takes off. This is Christmas uh, the day before Christmas Eve, like the 23rd of December. So he gets to Vietnam the next evening, Christmas Eve, in the morning, I think, and visits the troops. And everybody figures, okay, we're just going to go back to Washington now. But they don't. They but have scots to several other locations. And what he did was, this is an amazing story. He goes, I want to go see the Pope. And they said, but Mr. President, it's sort of like Christmas Eve. <laughs> Pope's busy. He's got other things to do. He says, no, I'm, I'm the president. I'm going to go see the Pope. All hell breaks loose. They, they move the, 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 the seventh fleet around in the Mediterranean to try to get out there to get a car that even might look like a presidential limousine. And the Pope sees him. 
There were two legendary reporters on that trip, uh, Merriman Smith of United Press and Jerry O'Leary, who at the time was working for the Washington Star. O'Leary, who is now dead also, told me the story of that trip. The president would come back and talk to the press pool uh, in the back of the plane periodically. And this thing went on and on. And at one point, Smitty, as they called him, was sitting on the aisle and he could see the president coming back. He threw his typewriter into the corner and raced for the bathroom and said, I can't stand it anymore. I can't do another one of these. <laughs> well, the crazy part of this trip was the Pope was shocked because here comes LBJ with no notice, right? The Pope did greet him. Had, you know, they had to helicopter him into Vatican City. He gets there, sees the Pope. The Pope gives LBJ this amazing uh, historical book as a present for the president. And you know what LBJ gave the Pope? A plaster of Paris bust of LBJ. <laughs> well, gift giving is a you know regular yeah. exchange of gifts between heads of state. But then here comes the, the wildest part. Now everybody's been going on this literally around the world trip. It's now Christmas Day, and they're flying back to Washington, D.C. And whatever happened in that meeting with the president and the pope was devastating for the president. And he starts drinking on the plane and, and gets pretty blasted and then calls one of his speechwriters in um, and says, sit down, and dictates this speech, basically resigning. And, and then he drifts off into some kind of a drunken stupor, and they take the speech away from him, and they put it away, and they think, maybe he'll forget, right? That was December of 67. March 31st, 1968, after Gene McCarthy is winning some, some stuff, and Robert Kennedy is moving up in the, in, the, uh, in the primary situation, Vietnam's looking even worse, LBJ calls that same speechwriter and says, where's that speech we did? What are you talking about, Mr. President? Hey, don't mess with me. I know I did this. Give me that speech. And they gave him the speech, and that was the speech he gave that night, saying, I will not run. Great story. I know. And written while he was drunk on Air Force One coming back from meeting with the Pope. I mean, crazy stuff like that. You can't make it up, as they say. You can't make it up, and we won't make it up. We're talking to Bill Plant, the legendary correspondent for CBS News. Stick with us. We'll be back right after this. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it welcome back to the cbs travel hour with peter greenberg and welcome back aboard the cbs radio travel hour i'm peter greenberg travel editor for cbs news talking with a legend at cbs news mr bill plant 52 let's not forget that half 52 and a half years covering everything the one thing we haven't talked about is the Civil Rights Movement. Civil Rights Movement was one of the first things I covered when I went to work for CBS. In fact, I'd been at CBS for two weeks in 1964 when I was sent as part of a large group of other correspondents to Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers had just disappeared. They were is this trying Goodman, to, Cheney, and Schwimmer? That's correct. Yeah. They were trying to register voters. Uh, it was the Freedom Summer. And uh, they disappeared. As we know, they were murdered. Their bodies were found several months later. But we went down there, and I was from, I'm from Chicago, and I'd never been really further south than St. Louis. 
So going to Mississippi... A brave new world. ...was kind of like being on the dark side of the moon. I had no idea. But it was a very quick learning experience. The Ku Klux Klan followed us. They could pick us out easily because, as one said to me, you all have the all those nice new cars from the rental at the airport. <laughs> so we were easy to spot. And they would chase us around just for sport as opposed to wanting to necessarily, not necessarily kill us, just, you know. Scary. Scare us, yeah. So uh, I did that uh, and spent most of that summer in the South, then the follow- then went to Vietnam for a while, and the following winter, 65, came back and was sent to Alabama, where Dr. King was starting to do a voter registration drive, and I was in Selma. For the, through, pe- for the Pettus Bridge. Through the march uh, and the, the march, subsequent march on Montgomery, Alabama. And that really turned things around. That one incident turned things around. Well, it certainly was a turning point. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it galvanized thousands of people um, after what happened at the foot of the bridge, the brutality shown by the troopers to the marchers, uh, brought thousands of people down to Alabama and really did a certain amount of awakening of the nation's conscience, I think. And covering that story, I mean, I go back, we, we, in fact, the CBS, just recently, uh, celebrating you, we ran some of that footage. They did. There was a lovely podcast. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, actually, I guess it was a podcast that was done by the 60 Minutes folks. Exactly. And looking at that footage even now, I mean, it's hard to imagine how you survived that day because the violence there was was huge. Well, the reporters were basically off on the sidelines watching what was happening. But there was, you know, there was tear gas. There was there was a lot of commotion. Absolutely. But our role is not heroic. Believe me. You have people like uh, John Lewis, who still is in Congress, 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 uh, who was one of the two leaders of that march. He was then about 22 years old. He got beaten over the head suffered a concussion. Uh, you can see him on the video, on the film. You can see him going down. Uh, those are the people who really suffered. We were, we were the watchers. We were the ones who were there to tell you what happened. What was the closest you came to dying? Uh, Vietnam, uh, when, uh, as, as often happened, you get into, you're going out with the troops, and you get in, they get into a firefight. And you have nowhere to go. You have nowhere to go. You get down low. And hope that the bullets all go overhead. Uh, I was lucky they did. And you could feel them and you could see them. Sure. I mean, you could hear them. Everything was there. You hear them go, you hear them go by. That's the, <laughs> that is a sensation which is hard to describe. But believe me, you know it when you hear it. Well, about two years ago, I was in Nairobi, not by design. I was there for something else. And when they had the shootout at the mall, the famous Westgate uh, Mall, and I was there Dot, literally dodging bullets because I just happen to be there, um, and you haven't. You, it's hard to explain and to, to describe somebody, especially when it's automatic weapons fire and it's coming by you so fast. You don't have even time to think, right? You just you're frozen. Right. Wow. And you came back. Thank God. I know. Then to cover the 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 civil wars, if you will, in the United States. The. Uh Unrest in the 60s is an interesting uh, contrast to the unrest that we have today because the civil rights movement really didn't achieve all of its objectives then, although people like to think, well, that settled things. But it didn't. And we still see today that there is inequality. 
and that there are people marching for justice. And you're going to see it uh, more, I think, uh, at this inaugural. There are going to be people marching because they disagree already with what they presume the policies of the new administration will be. And will you miss covering that? Yeah, a little bit, but I'll be around. (laughs) Well, you are going to be doing some coverage of the inauguration. I will be. For the Washington Post. I'll be sitting in with the Washington Post, um, lending maybe a little historical perspective. Well, see, that's the beauty of your body of work, because you can provide the perspective that most people can't. I mean, because you've been there. You know it. Well, I watched Jimmy Carter uh, get out of the limousine and walk on his inaugural parade, which was a very big deal. Because that had never happened before. Right. Remember Ronald Reagan standing out in um, zero-degree weather on the North Portico uh, wearing a suit? Um, he didn't stay out there very long, but they canceled the they canceled all of the. Uh, this was the second inaugural, right? They canceled all of the events because it was so cold. Um, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. And George W. Bush, his inaugural. His inaugural was uh, uh, one that I think uh, by then they had sort of perfected the the parade. The parade was probably the one of the best I've ever seen. You know, it's interesting because we talk about how the president travels by plane, but he also travels in the beast. The beast, of course, is the limousine, which uh, is looks like a stretch limo, right? And but, it's, got, it's got a Cadillac symbol in the front, but it's not a Cadillac. Well, uh, no, and it's uh, it's armored so that if you actually see the door when it opens, the door is almost a foot thick. The plate glass in the windows is several inches thick. Now, this is very hard to imagine, but when you see it on a side view, and it's very heavy. The Secret Service agents who actually open the door are in tip-top shape. They have to be, because (laughs) the door weighs several hundred pounds. Have you been in the limo? I've never been inside. Well, I can tell you, uh, other heads of state, I've been in their limo, and you learn a very embarrassing lesson. And that is, once you're in that limo, it is physically impossible for you to open the door from the inside. It's just too heavy. Right. Right. And and somebody, unless somebody wants to open the door for you, you're not leaving the car. <laughs> and that happened to me a couple of times. Nobody cared about me. The, the, you know, the head of state left, and I'm still in there like Austin Powers going, oh, can somebody come here and help me? It was, it was hysterical. Well, the Secret Service agent referred to it, agents refer to it as the beast, and it is considered a safe place. You'll recall that when the shooting happened, at uh, the Hilton Hotel when Ronald Reagan was hit yes. and James Brady was hit. Um, they threw the president into the limousine, and the Secret Service agent who was the head of his detail, Jerry, Jerry Parr, Parr, jumped on top of him. Yeah. And that is considered, and then they sped off. That is considered the safest place to be if anything happens. And I saw it happen. Uh, I was in San Francisco in, fr- in front of the St. Francis Hotel uh, when Sarah Jane Moore fired the weapon at, at Jerry Ford, and that's exactly, they threw him right in the limo and covered him up and off they went to the airport. Yeah. But those, those cars, though, were different. Those were old Lincolns. And, and then they went to some Cadillacs. And they had to replace them because they were so heavy that they, they could take one trip and the brakes would fail. They well, t- yeah. Yeah. They, those, those, uh, these cars are, uh, limousines are manufactured um, outside of the normal process. They're right. added on and... They get about four miles to the gallon, if that. <laughs> Maybe. They're not exactly fuel efficient. 
Did you see the photograph the other day when the, when the, when the limousine got stuck on the curb? I did. <laughs> it was so heavy they couldn't move. Couldn't it. move it off. Couldn't move it off. Um, interesting. Inside that car, they not only have um, uh, bottles of the president's blood. Uh, they have all the electronic countermeasures you can imagine. They have protection from gas attack. They have special armor plating so that you wouldn't get an IEV, you know, uh, you know one of those IEVs, uh, IEDs, I mean, uh, to, to blow up under the car. They could survive it. It's, it's that heavy. It is uh, an amazing piece of work. But to look at it from the outside casually, you can't tell. I know. And there, by the way, how many of them? I know how many there are. Do you know how many? Well, there are at least two. Seven. Uh. Because when the, president tra- when the president travels, when you were traveling with the president, there's a big C-5A taking that limousine ahead. That's another thing that a lot of people don't realize. When the president travels, there's a huge travel contingent that goes ahead. C-5A is a huge Air Force transport aircraft. And on board that C-5A will be the presidential limousines, at least two of them. And another one will have presidential helicopters if they're going to a distance beyond which the helicopters can fly. They fold up the blades. They put the helicopter in the C-5A so that when he gets to wherever he's going, the helicopter is there to ferry him to the latter part of the destination. The cars are there to drive. And um, there are hundreds of people already on the ground. In fact, it's estimated that the actual cost of a presidential trip to the taxpayer um, Factoring in the 747, the helicopter, the limos, the staff, the advance team, the food, the logistics, the communications packages, runs at about $129,000 an hour. Actually, it costs more than that per hour to fly Air Force One, they told us. Really? Yeah. It's several hundred thousand dollars to fly the plane alone. Wow. Now, during a presidential campaign, I'm assuming that the, the party in power pays that. The White House pays part and the party pays part because the president is still being the president wherever he goes, whatever he does. But uh, when he's campaigning, the party pays supposedly the lion's share. We've never been able to get them to break it down. My colleague, Mark Noller, who keeps very careful records of the presidency, has tried for years to get uh, several White Houses to break down the cost of Air Force One and these trips, particularly the trips that are political in nature, and they won't do it. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, I remember another trip uh, in October of 1981 when Anwar Sadat was killed in Cairo, and Reagan dispatched three former presidents, um, Carter, Nixon, and Ford, I believe, uh, to go to the funeral. Um, and one other person was on the plane, Alexander Haig. And it was the 707. And there was only one bedroom. So who got the bedroom? Was it Haig? It was. <laughs> he didn't do well in that department, yeah, did he? No, you can't make it up. No, you can't make it up. Al, I'm in control here, Haig, right? I asked him the question. Uh, I was in the briefing room that day. This is when Reagan got shot. When Reagan got shot, yeah. I said, uh, who's, you know... Who's in charge here? And he said that he was uh, next in line, which, of course, was not true. It was the Speaker of the House. Yeah, right. (laughs) Small minor detail that somehow eluded Mr. Haig, General Haig. That was crazy. And then, of course, you take the 89th Military Airlift Wing out at Andrews, which provides all the support, the airlift support for the president and also senior members of the White House. 
when Henry Kissinger was doing, you know, his shuttle diplomacy in Vietnam and Paris, he had a 707. Al Haig going down for the Falklands. You remember the Falklands? Sure. I mean, that was crazy, too. Well, whenever any administration official travels, they travel on those official aircraft. Uh, They don't get the presidential aircraft, but there's a whole fleet out there of aircraft that they can can use, some larger, some smaller. And let's not kid ourselves, not a lot of gold fixtures in the bathroom on those planes. No. They're... uh, They're pretty Spartan. They're made... uh, they're, They're... you know, everything everything is completely up to date, and it's very nice, but it certainly isn't super deluxe. And when you fly on the, on the airplanes of other heads of state, you see the differences immediately because those guys are too, totally styling it. Well, uh, you've had more experience than I, but I imagine that uh, the gold-plated faucets are not unusual in some cases, huh? No, there's, there's one that will blow your mind, and that's the, the presidential aircraft, actually the, the King's aircraft in Saudi Arabia. It's a 747. And everyone knows you, you go into the plane and you turn right. That's how you board planes. You go into that left-hand door and then you turn right. In this particular plane, you do turn right and you go down a very narrow hall, very long, narrow hall, because there's another door that opens up to the rest of the side of that plane, which is where the king hangs out. When you open that door, the carpet is five and a half inches thick. It's all red. There's not a single chair in that room. And it's, it's, a, it's a huge cavernous cabin. You could hold probably 60 people. There's nothing in there other than a red carpet and pillows against the windows, right? And then in the middle of the compartment is a giant, gyroscopically controlled throne chair just for him. And this is the part that just makes me crack up. No matter where the plane is going, it is, it is programmed to point only in the direction of Mecca. Well, he's the king. Yeah, but who knows? If I was the guy, I mean, honestly, if I would design that plane, I would like say, he'll never know where Mecca is. I'll just put a little $8 motor from Radio Shack in there. No, <laughs> when you're the king, you can do those things, I guess. I, and he did. And he did. But it'll be interesting to see how Trump downgrades, if you will, from his luxuriously appointed 757 to Air Force One, the 747. Well, he won't have any choice. He has to fly the government aircraft because of the safety and security. And the communications. And communications. So I wonder what will happen to that plane. Uh, what, Trump? You yeah. mean Trump Force One? Yeah, Trump Force One, yeah. Well, he'll be able to use it uh, when he's no longer president. <laughs> or the kids will use it. But it would be interesting to see how he redesigns the plane because it's rather Spartan inside. Well, that'll be interesting. I wonder if he will. I'm, I wouldn't bet on it. Do you think he'll redecorate the White House? All presidents do. Right. Uh, all presidents um, generally make some changes to the living quarters. Right. Uh, generally not so much to the public rooms. Right. So do you think there's sort of a budget cap on gold leaf now? You know, it's probably in there somewhere. <laughs> so what's the one story that you always wanted to do that you didn't do? Well, let's see. There were a, there were a bunch of them. I mean, uh, for example... Um, I never, uh, I never was able to. Uh, uh, it's hard. It's it's hard to pick because there are a whole lot of things out there. In spite of all the things I was lucky enough to do, yeah, that I never did get to do. And um, uh, one of them certainly is to uh, is to cover Europe. Uh, you know, as a as a reporter full time, I was in and out a lot, usually with presidents, but that would have been interesting. And the days when, when, when Reagan was president and the Western White House was in, 
was in, at the ranch, really. But the headquarters was Santa Barbara. Those were fun days. They were, because the President Reagan would go west, and he would go to his ranch uh, in the uh, Santa Ynez Mountains, up in the foothills. And he just hang there. He wouldn't and he didn't. He didn't do anything. He didn't go anywhere. So the rest of the press corps hung out in Santa Barbara uh, at a hotel, which was right across the street from the beach. The Sheridan. And um, which is no longer a Sheridan. A Sheridan. Yeah. But there were three or there were four, three or four rooms right in uh, the front of the hotel, which we took over every time we went for office space. Right. When we weren't there, the telephones, which were permanently installed, most of this was before cell phones. So they had all these telephone lines, multiple line equipment, and it was stored underneath the beds. Uh, and when these were normal hotel rooms, there were a whole bunch of phones under the beds. And occasionally, apparently, they would ring and nobody would know what to do about it or where the sound was coming from <laughs> when we weren't there. So uh, that was, uh, it was a great place to be because uh, Santa Barbara's lovely. And there were briefings every day, but after the briefing, nothing on. We it. could go to the beach. Well, you know, if you took a look at which presidents were the most favorite presidents, just based on the press corps, people loved Reagan, and they weren't too happy with George W. because Crawford, Texas. Come on. Well, Crawford was not uh, the people's first choice for a you know vacation spot. Wasn't their eighth choice? Either. It was president's for the president's choice. Yes. he loved it. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, President Obama, every Christmas season, has gone to Hawaii. Now, that's been great for a lot of reporters, too, because they get to spend Hawaii uh, maybe up to two weeks in Christmas, and over cool, Christmas. And the cool thing about it is now that you guys are flying commercially, you get mileage. That's true. See, the benefits of not having to fly that press charter. Bill Plant, CBS News legend. I'm so happy you're here today. Peter, great to be with you. And we'll be back with my wish list for 2017 right after this. Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. Speaking with Bill Plant, the legendary correspondent for CBS News. What great stories. Before we end the show, I wanted to talk about two items in the news that uh, came to my attention and maybe even yours as well. Uh, you may have seen the incident. It happened recently on a Delta Airlines flight, and you may have seen it because passengers shot video of it. It was the woman being carried down the aisle of the plane by two police officers, and it was shot by another passenger on his cell phone camera. And why was the woman being dragged off the plane? Apparently, the woman had raced onto the plane without showing her boarding pass in an attempt to get her carry-on bags in an overhead bin ahead of all the other passengers. When she was asked to leave the plane, she refused. And in fact, she stopped moving. And that resulted in that powerful video that you saw, or may have seen, of her being hauled off the flight. So what's the lesson here? It's very simple. The minute you walk onto an airplane, federal laws apply. And the flight attendant and the gate attendants become, in the eyes of the law, de facto federal agents. And if you refuse any of their requests, that's whether to fasten your seatbelt, or to refrain from loud or obnoxious behavior, or any other wide variety of infractions, including even offensive bodily odor, you know what happens? You violated federal law. And then the results can range from criminal charges to even civil actions taken against you by the airline, charging you with financial damages for the delay you caused everybody else. 
And sometimes, I've seen it happen, it includes a lifetime ban from ever flying that airline. So please remember, once you're on an airplane, your answer should always be yes, or there could be serious consequences. And stories like that happen all the time. I have a suggestion that might stop some of these problems. Why is it that airport bars are so close to jetways? There are no breathalyzers at the jetways. You have people sitting in bars getting tanked and then getting on an enclosed aluminum cylinder for a five-hour flight where there's inevitably going to be trouble. Flight attendants don't want to be cops. Believe me, they don't. But you start acting out at 35,000 feet and you're going to be lashed to your seat and then arrested by federal marshals when you land. So my deal is this. There's a reason why they don't sell liquor in the fourth quarter of an NFL game. Well, the fourth quarter should be 30 minutes prior to departure, no liquor can be served at an airport. Or you have breathalyzers. Because the one thing I don't want anybody to be next to me is tanked at altitude. Just thought I'd mention that. Uh, Now, speaking of of drinking, it's a sort of a different way to get into this. One of my biggest pet peeves and a wish list for 2017. Here's the question. What's worse? A restaurant that refuses to take reservations and makes you stand online or a restaurant that absolutely insists on reservations, but then doesn't honor them. It all gets down, in my book at least, to an appropriate definition of the word reservation. Now, in principle, that definition should be clear. A reservation is an implied contract. But more and more restaurants violate that contract every day. You know the deal. You arrive at the appointed time of your reservation, only to be told that your table is not ready, and then you're directed to the bar, where your reward, so to speak, for the restaurant's delay is spending additional money, yours, on drinks you didn't want. So whatever happened to the concepts of responsibility and hospitality? If your table isn't ready, shouldn't the restaurant offer to buy you a drink? Of course they should. But responsibility also works both ways. I want to be fair about this. Think about this. If you're late for your reservation, or even worse, you're a no-show, then shouldn't there be a penalty charge on your credit card? It's a much more honest and equitable way to approach the restaurant reservation system, and believe me, I'll drink to that. Well, that's it for this edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News, and I'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.